Hey, this is Andrew Kuhn, and you're listening to the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Jeff and I talk about actionable stock ideas, timeless investing concepts, and the overall way that we think about investing at Focus Compounding Capital Management. Go to focuscompounding.com and enter in your email to get a free watch list from Jeff every other week. And be sure to check out all of our other work where Jeff writes about stocks at focuscompounding.com. I upload how-to investing videos on YouTube, and we both manage capital for investors at Focus Compounding Capital Management. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe to follow along. Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focus Compounding, the number one value investing podcast in the world, sitting next to Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going really well. How's it going with you? It's going fantastic. I always wait for the, uh, is, how's it going with you? But it's, it's going great. As always, we hope it's going great for everybody else as well. Hey, if this is the first time that you are tuning in with Sir Jeffrey Harvin, Harvey Gannon and myself, um, be sure to check out all of our work. FocusCompounding.com. Jeff blogs about ideas. 250 plus write-ups this year. <laughs> Insane. 250 plus write-ups. And if you want access to that, be sure to sign up. That's planned. 250 planned. Nope. 250 plus write-ups okay. of, of a bunch of different stocks. And we're actually going to be going over pretty much every spinoff going forward as well. Mm-hmm. I compiled a, uh, a new ecosystem for us. something written about them. They to, won't all be long. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, so definitely sign up on the premium website for that. And if you do sign up, use the podcast promo code, which is podcast. There is a stocks A to Z section on there with over 100 different ideas, uh, mainly overlooked, a lot written by Jeff. Some by other members, but it's all pretty solid content, I would say. If you like free stuff, sign up on the homepage for our email list, the Gannon Gazette, the famous Gannon Gazette. We're polling a Benjamin Franklin, and if you want to have something from us for free in your email box, which has a idea for free that was written up on the premium side of the of the website, uh, you can sign up for that at uh, the homepage. If you like the work that we're doing here as well, uh, um, you know, obviously a rating review, hitting that subscribe button goes a long way for us. So in today's podcast, we are going to be talking about sitting on your ass. I came across this article that you sent me, which I thought was great. It's called Sit on Your Ass Investing. And obviously Munger has talked a lot about that. I think that actual quote uh, comes from him. Um, But I think we should talk about like the art of selling. You and I have privately talked about selling a lot. Um, I don't know if we've actually done a podcast itself on Mm -hmm. selling. So I figured why not uh, chat about it. And in this write-up, uh, which you could see because we record our screen now, okay. if, uh, you're on the YouTube side of things. He just goes through a bunch of, uh, um, you know, he talks a little bit about John Huber's, um, uh, his annual letter when he was talking about um, if you just essentially own Apple, you outperform pretty much the whole market and every sort of active manager. Um, but then he was going through different quotes from, I guess, great investors on selling in general. And you and I, when we've spoken privately about this, one thing that you said to me that I thought was interesting one time was you said, you think people should never sell. And over time, your bad investments become just such a small part of your portfolio and your winners essentially become such a big part of your portfolio. So why do you think that way? Take me through that thought process and let's dive in. All right. So that applies to individual investors, I would say. If if someone asked me what is the best way an individual, not someone managing money for other people, should invest, I would say spend all year long thinking about what should I buy. Then you buy it and then you forget that you own it. Because next year you'll put new money in at the start 
um, in something else. So I'm not suggesting that you uh, put in a huge amount of money into something and keep uh, and never cut it back, right? But if you know that you're never going to buy more of it, right? So you're diversified by year or someone doing this. And this is common for people because they're saving money, right? Individuals are usually saving mm -hmm. some amount of money each year and they could put it into something. Then you're best off that way because if you made a mistake, it'll shrink down to a smaller part of your portfolio, right? You'll end up risking less and less on it in future years. And if it is successful, then it'll become a bigger and bigger part of your portfolio. So this is for individuals that are constantly adding money. Yes. The issue which you can get into for why some money managers and stuff might not do this has to do with certain concentration levels and stuff. If you start at very high concentration levels, it can become a problem. And if you invest somewhat differently than we do, a little more speculatively in some things, it can become a problem. So I'm thinking like, um, uh, I think Bill Miller at one time owned a lot of Bitcoin or something, right? Yeah. And then it gets to be half your fund, then you probably want to spin it off or sell it or something, right? Owned Amazon. And it gets to be too big, then people start saying, oh, well, you just own Amazon. Uh, ben Graham if he hadn't spun out Geico distributed to his um, uh, investors, it would have been mostly Geico at some point. And sure. so a lot of people don't want you to manage something that's mostly something like that, right? But for an individual, it doesn't matter. It, it doesn't matter to you that half your portfolio ends up in Apple, you know? Mm -hmm. And then in future years, you don't, you'll put it in, in uh, different ways, right? So you're not making the decision to go 50% into Apple. That just happens naturally because you've owned it for 10 years. Sure. Um, I'm going to read you some of these quotes and, and get your thoughts on it. Of our most costly mistakes over the years, almost have almost all have been sell decisions. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, that's, I mean, mathematically, that's certainly true for me. Uh, since I started investing, the most costly in dollar amounts mistakes have been selling. Yes. Why do you think that is? Because the stock continued to do well for like 10 or more years. Do you think you people, and not just you, but like investors in general, they almost get like anchored to, okay, well, this stock has been going up so much because you don't sell mm. because of valuation typically. It's always because you have a new idea that new you idea. like more. Yeah. It's just a lot of new ideas. Uh -huh. Now, if I had a huge portfolio, maybe I wouldn't mind. So if everything was a 1% position to start, then I, maybe I wouldn't mind to let something stay forever, but eventually sell it to buy something else. Have so you, you get bored, you buy something else, you know, all those things that happen to people. It doesn't seem like whenever you read about maybe these individuals that um, weren't active investors themselves, like as of like they weren't in the business themselves mm -hmm. of managing money. Whenever you hear about, I don't want to say these average Joes because I'm not mm -hmm. trying to like right. discredit or anything, but let's just say these average Joes that somehow, mm -hmm. you know, they die and they have like $15 million or $20 right. million. Mm -hmm. And then you read about the way that they invest and it was always, they just bought it and they never sold it. Yeah. That's you true. know, haven't you? Don't you think it's kind of like that? Yeah, I mean, yeah. From a lot of cases that, that you're obviously, about? in terms of fortunes that people would make, that's how it would be. I was reading a, an article once about a, I think it was a janitor. Okay. Or, or you know, he never made more than I don't know whatever, probably mm -hmm. fifty, sixty thousand dollars a year, probably less than that. And he died, you know, a multimillionaire. Mm -hmm. It was because he would just buy stocks his whole career or his whole life, and he just never sold it. Mm -hmm. Never sold the stock. He would just always kind of do what you were just talking about doing. Right. So that, that makes sense. And, uh, and Phil Fisher was kind of like that too, right? Yes. Yeah. So Phil Fisher was that way. Now, Phil Fisher is interesting that way because I think he started with some smaller positions and then he would like add to them as he learned about the company and got to be real comfortable with and stuff. But of course, that's how Buffett did it. I mean, in terms of Berkshire Hathaway. So the thing that's kind of funny about it is when people talk about copying Buffett and stuff, what mm -hmm. they never talk about copying or seem to almost never talk about copying is he basically starts buying a stock, buys it for a while. Right. Mm -hmm. And then he gets a certain position in it and then the price goes up or whatever. And then he stops buying and then he pretty much doesn't add or take away from it after that. So mm -hmm. like Washington Post or something, he made a lot of money on, you know, and um, he basically didn't add or sell it in a meaningful way after that. Um, which is not how most people approach it, right? They either trim it back to become more in line with everything else. They sell it pretty 
uh, quickly, yeah. or they they add. They both add and subtract from it over time. You see a lot of that where people kind of trade around the position, which is something he never did. Um, it's hard at times, though, because using the Washington Post example, I think he was down in that stock the first three years, but up about 30% a year over the first 10 years. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And, of course, it still is true that something like that, I would say if you're an active money manager, sure, you're going to maximize your returns by owning things for, say, 10 years, usually, instead of 30 or something. And that'll even be true with Apple. If you bought Apple at a point where it was um, just turning around to being consistently profitable and everything, the first 10 years for Apple is probably going to be a lot better than the next 10 years. Mm-hmm. You know, that's still true. But your return over the entire time period is still pretty good. And, you know, there are other benefits to it. What are some characteristics, though, of these stocks that you think you could really own for? you know, um, for a long time. I mean, it has to be the jockey that you're betting on. And also the right. business has to have, I would imagine, an enormously long runway. And maybe even yeah. like, I don't want to say, because look, we focus on companies that are predictable, but I would say even the ability to innovate and, and kind of, you know, constantly mm-hmm. innovate and stuff like that. I mean, if, even if you look at Apple, for example, right. I mean, look how much they've innovated and they have changed, you know, going from just like, uh, you know, the computer um, to, you know, iPhones and, you know, mm-hmm. doing everything else that they do, their ecosystem, the app store, you know, now they're yeah. in the watch business. They're constantly innovating. And I know a lot of people like to say, oh, they're not innovating. Apple's dead, blah, blah, blah. blah. But I mean, it's just not true, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's the Phil Fisher approach is to have new areas for them to go into. I think it's hard to know how big the runway is for a lot of stocks. Not all of them. There's stocks like I think of, you know, Walmart, Southwest, Starbucks. From the moment that they were fast growers on, people knew that, oh, well, an airline could get really big. <laughs> There's a lot of room for a lot of coffee shops. There's yeah. a lot of rooms for to cover the whole country um, with uh, retail stuff. But for a lot of these, like you're saying, Apple... You know, at each stage that you're in, could you have foreseen that they would have gone into all those different areas, you know? I mean, where they make most of their money from is something that didn't exist sure. as a yeah. realistic uh-huh. option, as smartphones and stuff. So, you know, I'm sure that there would have been people saying the runway isn't as big as that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the hard part of it. You have to have high returns on capital. Yeah, that's what's going to reinvest it. Yeah. yeah, the best businesses for a long-term investment, therefore, are those with both enduring high returns on capital and attractive reinvestment opportunities. So yeah, the return on incremental invested capital. Yeah, that's the issue. And so we talked about it. For me, the one that would be the most obvious thing to buy and hold forever would be to find a small bank you like, because it'll be around. Banking will be around for as long as you're going to be living. Mm-hmm. And um, the opportunities to reinvest in are basically unlimited. A small bank could grow much faster than any other bank for a very long time and still not have that big market share. Mm-hmm. Um, now, so what are some qualities that you would want to see in that bank? Because I mean, banks, I think there's more public bank companies than yeah. any other company or, yeah. you know, in, in the, on the planet. It has to have high returns on equity, and then it has to have some way to reinvest it. The some way to reinvest is hard for a bank. So most of the ones that you'll see that are small banks are community banks, and it would be very hard for them to expand outside the community. Okay. So that's the hard part of it. Okay. So if you have anything that you can do that you can expand outside the community, then you could have success. But you have to figure out why that is. If they have any sort of success in going into new markets, into I mean, they're, they're different things. I wrote up a bank, bank uh, BOK Financial, um, and it had some success innovating with certain things, going into new markets, doing some things like expanding somewhat to become more of a regional bank over time by entering sort of like doing a tiny acquisition of some branch somewhere or a tiny acquisition of some team that did a certain kind of lending mm-hmm. and then trying to expand that experiment with it and then expand it in a big way. So there are ways to do that. But there are most banks that you're going to see that are successful at a really small size are real community banks. They never get to like the regional type size. Mm-hmm. Whereas like when Buff invested in Wells Fargo or something, it was already showing a success for a long time to, um, and really it was the predecessor bank, which wasn't called Wells Fargo, that it really had the success in um, expanding into new markets and 
just a real sales oriented culture and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Customer service oriented. Yeah. Um, you know, what about when he invested in Bank of Rockford? So that's an interesting one. Uh, that actually grew pretty well too. Because he paid what, like what, two times book for that. Yeah. So the, the story there is basically that they brought in, um, it was a very efficiently run bank mm -hmm. and they brought in a lot of like CD type money, right? So it was just an operator. I think that if you didn't have um, the president of that bank running it, uh, it wouldn't have been as successful. Mm -hmm. So that's the other one. And that happens a bunch. I can think of a bunch of banks where uh, I'd have pretty high hopes for it if the person that you knew was running it now continued to, but after their time there, I don't know about it. Um, but what makes a bad bank, right? Let's talk about a bank that a lot of Valley investors like, Bank of Ozarks. Uh, I'm trying to I'm trying to bait Jeff. Jeff's talked to me about this privately. Um, <laughs> okay, let's be honest. Okay. Why why is it something that you would probably not invest in? Not probably. You definitely would not invest in because of the types of loans they're making and where they're making them. Okay, so, so expand. concerns me both of those. But it's and it's not just them, by the way. There's a I wrote up a insurance company. Insurance is very similar to uh, banking in a lot of ways. Wrote up an insurance company that's originally uh, uh, was a Norwegian insurance company expanding to different sorts of things. The way in which they expanded different stuff concerned me. Is just that if if you're wrong about if management is wrong about the way that they're pricing things, if the risks that they're taking, uh, it will fall apart pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. Compared to the banks we were just talking about, there there's. Those are very centralized operations, I would say. I think Bank uh, OZK or Bank Ozarks or whatever um, seems to me to be very centralized in terms of t how big risks is taking, how high up in the organization. Mm -hmm. um, so it's hard for me to evaluate. If someone's running it who's a genius, then you're fine. Uh, sure. Or a team of people who are geniuses or who have a better uh, mousetrap, you know, in terms of pricing mm -hmm. these things and stuff. So, uh, you know, I don't have details on how they do that. And they could be much better than anyone else. Mm -hmm. uh, there's this quote in here on, on um, you know, runways by Chuck Haker, who's very known for focusing on incredibly high return investment capital type businesses, right? I think if you actually read his presentation, it's like all pretty much spent on that, or he did a Google talk and it was pretty much all on that. Uh, he says, in our office, we often say, how wide and how long is the runway? Yeah. And uh, yeah, I can think of that with a bunch of the businesses that he invested mm -hmm. in. And, it's and he seems to get out of them when they, he doesn't see the, like the growth potential anymore going forward mm -hmm. that seems to be why and, and it's an interesting um you know when i was reading this last night it was even talking about amazon right and how amazon's like this trillion dollar company and, and it's like okay so how what's the long what's the runway look like there it's mm -hmm. i would still even like the retail side of amazon the online retail the e-commerce it's still probably big because they still don't own like 100 percent of the market and yeah. i mean not saying that they could ever get to 100 percent, but will it be bigger 10 15 20 years in the future we talked about this before probably Thanks, right? stocks uh, Amazon has much more runway than any of the other fang stocks. Mm -hmm. Much more. Why do you say that? They have much lower market share and much bigger markets. Mm -hmm. The other stocks, things like Facebook and stuff, have huge market share in in advertising, which is our, there's not that much left of it. Mm -hmm. Google. I mean, Google and Facebook make their money basically off of um, advertiser-supported media stuff. They already are a really big share of that, and it, that's not growing that fast. Mm -hmm. You know, Amazon, what's its market share in groceries or something? It's it's not big at all. And so that's a huge market that you can invest in. And there's whole sections of retail that's not big in, and there's whole parts of the world that's not big yeah. in. So. Uh, there was a very interesting part in this um, article that I thought you know, it was definitely worth talking about. It says, not selling a stock that delivers exceptional returns can result in a quality problem. The stock becomes a large part of the portfolio. So we we're just talking about not yeah. selling it, right? Mm -hmm. And he was talking about Ted Weschler, uh, his position in, in WR Grace. It uh, became almost 50% of his fund before he closed his fund to join Berkshire Hathaway. Um, and then it was also, one thing I thought was interesting was when Lai Lu delivered a 200 plus 
200% mm-hmm. plus fund return in 2009 as BYD skyrocketed 400%. Uh, it also became over 50% of its partnership. Yeah. So I think it's interesting. If you're going to invest this way, you are going to have some serious volatility, right? If right. you're going to hold these stocks, they become a massive part of your portfolio. Yeah. And reporting is the problem, especially if you're reporting quarterly or something. Yeah. So if you're reporting quarterly, you run into this problem because even if the stock does great even year to year, mm-hmm. if you happen to end a quarter at a point where the stock was priced pretty high yeah a not even very big drop if you half of your port so let's say half your portfolio is in byd or something right byd I mean, we, ex- we experienced that with naco right and yeah. you're like i feel i feel you're like i feel kind of dumb having to explain this this sell-off when the stock's been up whatever it is it was on the year right yeah. so for clients it was generally up and it was up a lot from the year but it happened to be that our quarter ended uh one of the quarters ended like the week that the stock was at the highest point it had been and yeah not just the highest point but it went up a lot the week before the quarter ended so the problem that you have there is um it drops to a point which is the same point it was six months ago or something yeah. but you're talking about it because for the quarter yeah and that's a problem that individual investors don't have they and it was still a great return it. year like year over year sure. though, is what i'm saying but the the individual investors don't have to focus on that yeah the reporting thing so the the weird things about reporting and that can happen with the year too but it's more likely with a quarter so you have things where you go oh over you have stocks that are up for the year and yet you're saying we were down for the quarter because of this. And that's likely when you have very high concentration, right? So if it was 50% BYD, BYD drops 10% for a quarter. It wouldn't be bad at all. That's 5%. That's the difference between you having a great quarter yeah. compared to the market, you mm-hmm. know, starting your letter off with, and not a good uh, quarter. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people are cautious about that. You mentioned the Apple thing. The problem obviously wasn't that active managers didn't own Apple. It's that they own 3% of Apple instead of 100%. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. and one thing that I thought was interesting from this um, – this write-up, which everyone, again, be sure to check this out on masterinvest.com. Um, it says, a large position can also constrain your decision-making if it leads to commitment bias. Lee Luf's fund struggled in 2010 and 2011 as the BYD share price declined nearly 80% from its 2009 high. By the end of 2012, the position size still represented one-third of the fund. By 2014, the position size had been substantially reduced to 10% as a result of the new f- investments by limited partners and other portfolio gains. With the benefit of hindsight, Mr. Liu questioned his decision regarding the proper sizing of BYD after the market gains uh, became so large. In the end, he felt commitment bias um, had constrained his decision-making process. Yeah, and I think he might be right that commitment bias did it, but it's also true that the experience of managing money for other people and drops that much uh, in a few years uh, would be a reason why you don't want to do that and why I said like um, it's an easier strategy, I think much easier strategy for individual investors to follow mm-hmm. than it is for someone who's managing a fund. Yeah, because you know, now you're getting new money in and stuff like that. And even when it was 50% of his fund, he wrote a letter to his investors saying, expect extreme volatility going forward. Right. When this one position represents 50% of our fund, you're going to have massive volatility. Right. So coming from like a money manager perspective, yeah. obviously individuals have a total the advantage. Individuals don't have to even look at what their return is for the year. Individuals can just look at it and say, oh, I'm up three times in this stock. This stock has done better than the market since I bought it. Uh, I like the stock, so I'm going to keep holding it. Mm-hmm. And not have to worry about, oh, in each of the last two years, it's down a big amount. Mm-hmm. They don't have to worry about that. So how do you, what is the art of selling then? That is the title of this podcast, so, in uh, your opinion. So is it the never sell? Or is it the art of never selling? Is it the art of selling? Well, it only makes sense to never sell. Is it the art of the deal? It only makes sense not to sell if you're right about the business in the first place and you continue to feel the same way about the business. So putting price aside for a moment, which we'll get into, the, that's the first thing. So I would say you have to be right about the business in the first place. 
Um, many of these are concentrated investors, you'll notice. Yeah. Um, so I think people who are more diversified will sell faster, so this isn't an issue for them. Um, and so you have a lot of commitment to it and all that early on. But if you still believe that it's doing what you expected it to do early on, uh, years later, and the price is just up a lot, then you just have to evaluate it versus the price. Now, I would say, generally, I was just talking to someone on an email about this, uh, in my opinion, the time to consider selling is if you, so when you value a stock in terms of an intrinsic value, usually you don't want to use a stock price. So you don't want to say, I'm going to sell, this stock is worth $50 a share. You want to say this stock is worth two and a half times sales mm-hmm. or, you know, book value or whatever it is. So when you look at that and try to readjust the intrinsic value, if you're still saying that the multiple in your mind, the multiple still should be worth as much or more, mm-hmm. then I think you should be pretty comfortable with it. But if you evaluate and say, okay, actually this needs to, uh, this isn't any more worth as much on a multiple basis as yeah. I thought it was, mm-hmm. then you might want to consider selling it. And you want to be very cautious of letting that get bigger and bigger as a part of your portfolio. The mm-hmm. other one is just selling it because you need to replace with something else, which can happen when it gets very expensive and some other thing you own gets cheap. And that does happen sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in general, I would say... Probably our mistakes have been not selling losers fast enough, though we sell them faster than a lot of people do, a lot of value investors do, and um, not having owning winners for very long periods of time would Mm -hmm. probably be it. But when I say winners and losers, what I really mean is in terms of um, the compounding of the intrinsic value while you own it and what you think about it that way. So I think that, well, that's the hard part is it's so hard to come across these incredibly high quality businesses. Right. Right. So let's say you own a business that is now trading at 30 times earnings, Mm -hmm. but it's still growing its intrinsic value by, I don't know, whatever you think per year better than, you know, the average or better than these other companies. And then you have a different business that's at seven times earnings that you think is undervalued. That's when you're like, uh, what do I do? Right. Exactly. And that's usually what happens is that the mistakes are selling something that is higher quality and higher priced to buy something that's lower quality and cheap. Um, now other people might make other mistakes. We're generally going to make that mistake because, um, we'd be cautious about something getting really expensive. And also we just are not generally gonna we haven't generally made the mistake of paying a lot for something that turned out to be not a good business mm-hmm. uh, the only times that we've made really bad mistakes in terms of business quality are buying very cheap things mm-hmm. you know we haven't misjudged something that's very expensive mm-hmm. that does happen to some other people though some growth things and more speculative growth stuff can do that where you can pay 30 40 times earnings and then those earnings decline a lot mm-hmm. you know um commodity type things can be that way but it hasn't happened to us because i think we've only paid really high prices for things that are very predictable growth mm-hmm. you know and that would be the same as like Buffett or something like that. If he's going to pay a very high price, it means he likes the stock a lot uh, in terms of the durability of the business, right? Mm-hmm. But I mean, think about when he has sold companies. I mean, IBM, he sold IBM. IBM, and that he felt that was a mistake and sold it. There have been other companies that I noticed he seems to have sold that would have made sense to hold on forever. So I did notice that he seemed to have sold General Dynamics in the 90s. And if he had held that for 15 to 20 years, he would have beaten the market in it by Quite a bit, I think. Mm-hmm. So um, that was an interesting one. And that one, I know he got involved in sort of like a special situation and then decided to stay in it for the business. Changing. So do you think it really comes to like the portfolio, like the portfolio manager um, decisions as opposed to like the analyst decisions? Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah, I do think that. Because unfortunately... It's like, oh, well, what's best for the portfolio right. as opposed to, no, I think this business is great. It's still going to continue to yeah. grow for years to come. I, I think that. Because I just said that I thought individual investors are the ones who are best able to do this. And Buffett has a holding company where people aren't doing the calculations on how big the position is at times. He, like Geico. He let Geico get huge. 
as a position early on. He made a very big investment in it and it went up right away. Yeah. Um, if he had been managing a partnership or something like the investment he made in American Express, there'd be more to have to talk about and and do all that. Whereas if you're doing it as an investment in a um, holding company structure, he doesn't really talk. I mean, he doesn't go into detail of like people calculate on websites. We might calculate it how much he has in each thing, but he doesn't go and tell his shareholders, well, 20% of our stock portfolio is in Wells Fargo or Heinz or mm -hmm. whatever. That's not what he does. So they don't focus on that. But of course, if we write a letter, we're going to talk about things like that. And so it, it gets people focused on those kinds of concentration things. Mm -hmm. I think it's a very, very hard strategy for someone to follow if they're a fund manager. Although yeah. there are examples of people who did it. Which is why right here, see this part? You need aligned investors. Yeah. It's the paramount in light of potential for outsized positions and volatile returns. Educating I, investors mm -hmm. and preparing them for an absence of portfolio activity is a sensible strategy. Okay. And you know what the biggest problem here is with this? That they keep taking in new investors. So that's yeah. the problem. Mm -hmm. So when you keep taking in new investors, what ends up happening here with a fund, for instance, that does great on a performance and then has some years that are down because it owns a lot of the stock. Yeah. So some people are ecstatic and don't care that the stock is, that the fund is down 20% this year because they were there when it was doubling and everything because of this yeah. position. And you have one client that loves you and one client that hates you. And then the one who just joined, of course, thinks, okay, well, I only got the part where the stock went yeah. down. So they're not happy about it at all. And that would happen with like Lee Lu or something, I'm sure. If you... Um, you know, if you joined after BYD went up a bunch, then you don't care about the fact that, you know, the original decision made a lot of sense. Sure. Right? Mm -hmm. No, no, I think that's great. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with Mr. Jeff and myself on the number one value investing podcast in the world. If this is the first time that you are tuning with us on YouTube, hit that subscribe button, thumbs this video up, leave us a rating review on the podcast side of things. That goes so far for us. 160 plus podcasts in and we are innovating and we are educating. That's our new model. Innovating and educating. Thinking of new ways to bring new content to you guys. Um, and obviously, the support means so much to Jeff and myself. If you do sign up for uh, the website, Jeff is going to write up 250 plus write-ups this year. Be sure to sign up using the podcast promo code if you like to save $10. If you don't, don't use the promo code. It'll be $60 a month as opposed to $50 a month. I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with us. We'll see you in the next podcast. Take care. Hey, this is Andrew Kuhn, and that was the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Jeff and I talk about actionable stock ideas, investing concepts, and the overall way that we think about investing at Focus Compounding Capital Management. Go to focuscompounding.com and enter in your email to get a free watch list from Jeff every other week. And be sure to check out all of our other work where Jeff writes about stocks at focuscompounding.com. I upload how-to investing videos on YouTube, and we both manage capital for investors at Focus Compounding Capital Management. Thanks for listening and be sure to subscribe to follow along.